welcome everyone to today's IGC event on gender equality and the data revolution. Please feel free to contribute to the discussion online by using the hashtag LSCFestival. So the reason why the IGC convened this discussion today is to try to examine in what way can the data revolution promote gender equality. Now I'll kick off with some anecdotes. Now women make around half of the global uh, consumer markets, right? And yet when you look at the types of products that are produced and are marketed, they tend to have the preferences and the needs of men in mind. And this ranges from everything from equipment to technology, the way the iPhone is designed, to the placement of public toilets and public buildings. In a recent book in, um, entitled Invisible Women, Exposing Data Bias in a World Designed for Men, Caroline Criado Perez actually shares some harrowing statistics that go beyond just the product market. So for instance, women have a 47% higher chance of being seriously injured in a car accident. They have a 17% higher chance of actually dying from it. Now there may be many reasons for this statistic, one of them might be that crash test dummies that are used for car safety tests go back to the 50s and tend to have um, the model or the prototype of the average male, a 76 kilo average male. Now the gender data bias can go beyond just product markets. It can also be present in labor markets, which hopefully we'll discuss a bit more later this evening as well. So for instance, the fact that um, most of the work that women tend to do, particularly in the developing world, tends to be more manual, tends to not conform as much to the official definitions of a nine-to-five job, and therefore tends to be undocumented. Um, so this raises the issue of how to interpret this labor female, um, uh, female labor force participation. So achieving gender equality clearly requires having higher quality data to design more effective policies and then to be able to measure their impact as well. So this is, these are the kind of the broad theme of the discussion tonight. Um, I will be putting a question or two to each of our panelists, of each of our speakers, and then I'll open up to collect questions from the audience as well. First, I'd like to start welcoming our experts. And so tonight we'll have Ariana Bandiera, who is a professor of economics here at the LSE. Uh, she's also the director of Stickard and the director of the state, the IGC State Research Program. Here to my left, I have Tonasri Basu. And Tonasri is the lead of policy priorities at Open Government Partnership, OGP. She leads policy strategy and partnerships in areas like anti-corruption, gender, digital governance across all the 78 countries that OGP, um, that are members of the OGP. She has consulted on international open government projects, including with UN Women and the World Bank. She has worked with grassroots organizations on information transparency and inclusive citizen participation. I'd also like to welcome Tuivui Siwale. Uh, Tuivui is currently a policy economist here at the IGC. Previously, she was the IGC country economist for Zambia. She has over six years of experience in the field of public finance and management, particularly looking at issues of taxation. Prior to joining us at the IGC, Tuivui worked at the Zambia Revenue Authority as a policy and legislation officer, where she worked on policy implementation and domestic taxes division. 
She's also a Mandela Washington Fellow who studied public management at the Andrew Yang School of Public Policy in Atlanta in Georgia in the US. So I would start off by posing some questions to Oriana. And so we know the statistics. So women tend to be um, underrepresented in well-paid jobs. There's a lot of gender disparities in labor markets. So what role do you think that gender data can play in these disparities and promoting these disparities in labor markets? And how can we think about collecting better data in order to improve policy design? Thank you, Sandra. Um, so the one advantage of being an economist is that you always think of the alternative. So what is the alternative to data? If we didn't have data, how would we make decisions? Well, we make decisions based on opinions. And opinions often reward those who can express them better, who can scream louder. Mm -hmm. All things that do not necessarily correlate with the facts. So I think it's uh, easy to say that data is better than opinions. We are improving our data collection, uh, but not quite as much as, uh, as we should. So as Sandra mentioned, labor takes many forms, many forms that differ from the standard eight to five or nine to five job. And women, because they tend to balance the demand of the family, with a job, they tend to be more employed in this type of irregular or casual labor. So we need to have surveys that better measure these type of issues. Um, the other thing which always shocks me is that if you were to see this panel, if you were an alien coming from outer space and say you're here in a panel of economists, you would conclude that most economists are women, maybe exclusively women. <laughs> As a matter of fact, so, in a top economics department, I think the statistics of women is about 20%. And if you go higher up at my level, like decrepit people like me, the statistics is about 15% if you're lucky. So why is that is always women talking about, the women come out only when we talk about women in economics. Why is that? Because the issue is always seen as an issue of equity. And so it's the people who are treated worse that come out to complain. But it is not really a matter of equity. It's really also, well, it is a matter of equity, but it is first and foremost a matter of efficiency. We are wasting the talent of half of the population. And that, in a time where we have very limited resources and the few resources that we have we should use efficiently, is a pretty stupid idea. <laughs> um, so... Great. So, so in theory, as you say, closing this gender... <laughs> this is very natural. <laughs> great that it's an all-women panel. But, <laughs> but so, so in theory, it should be easy to solve this problem, as you say. So we should just collect better data disaggregated by gender. We know, however, that the way data are collected, the way they're analyzed, processed, and disseminated, often have a series of implicit bias and assumptions, social norms about how, what women's preferences are, what their behaviors are. So how can we get around those yeah, biases? That, that's a, a very good point. I'm not getting up in progress. I'm getting up in <laughs> I want to illustrate with facts, given that I've made the case for facts. So I would like you guys to take your phones and we do a little exercise talking about stereotypes and data. Okay? Now, women, there is always the case made that women are different. 
Right? Women are from Venus and men are from Mars. <laughs> Whatever that means. Uh, different on a series of traits. Women are more altruistic, they care more about children, they dress better, they are more overconfident, less overconfident, let's see. So I want you to vote. I want you to take the phone and I'll explain you how to vote in a second. See, that's a standard two axis, four quadrants. On the vertical axis, we put men. <laughs> if you think that men are overconfident, you should place your pin on the top half. If you think that men are underconfident, you should place your pin in the bottom half. On the horizontal axis, we shall have women. If you think that women are overconfident, please place your pin on the right side of the graph. If you think that women are underconfident, please place your pin on the left side. So you go four quadrants, four combinations, and you can also vary the strength of your opinion. So if you think that women are very underconfident and men are super confident, you would put a pin there. If you think that they're both very depressed, and there's plenty of reasons to be depressed nowadays, you put it here and so on. So I'll tell you how to do it. Just have to go to this website, paulf.com slash And you should face a quadrant like this one. Now, unfortunately, my technical skills are limited, so the little men and women have disappeared. <laughs> but I shall remind you that this is the overconfident quadrant, both of them overconfident. This is the men overconfident, so men are high and women are left and right. So this is men overconfident and women underconfident. This is both underconfident. I think you got it. <laughs> Coming down nice. <laughs> Thank you. Fantastic. I think I can make my point. <laughs> That's a stereotype. Actually, these numbers are not the one that you just sent, because I'm not that quick. I'm probably very close. This, this comes from a survey of 400 economists to whom we asked exactly the same question that I asked you. But instead of asking their opinion, given that these are experts, we asked them to tell us the reading of the literature, because there is a voluminous literature that tests for these biases. So we ask people, based on your reading of the literature, you esteemed economist, please tell us where do you think people sit. And most of them agreed with you. Yeah. Now what we did, because we believe in data rather than opinions, we actually went to read all those papers. And we collected all the results. And this is the data. Okay? The share of results in all the literature that test for confidence suggests that there is 19%, not 89%, 19% of cases where men are overconfident and women are underconfident. The vast majority were all deluded. <laughs> we're all here. The 80% is on this side. We swap that for that. Okay? 45 plus 29. Why did I split it in half? 
because maybe you say men are more overconfident than women, there's always a matter of degree. And to some extent that's true. In 45% of the cases, men are more overconfident, but in 30% of the cases, women are more overconfident. The stereotype continues, but hopefully now that we have the data facing it, it will continue for less time. So that was my illustration of why we should prefer data. Thank you so much, Oriana. So now I would turn to Tony's, Tony's three. Um, so what do you think are the areas where the gender data gap are most salient? And what do we need to do in terms of collecting that data and how to tackle these gender-specific societal issues? Um, thanks. So. I'm an aberration on this panel because I'm not an academic, so I'll be a little bit from that. I'll come from a policy perspective. So where I sit is I work for an international organization with 78 member countries, and we work with them in civil society partners to see what policy makes sense. So I'll, my, uh, my answer to your question depends on a lot on what I see there. So I think to just begin with, I think one of the things we see is, is um, in in listening to people, if you talk about policy and saying, well, here you, you talk about data and you talk about gender equality, the pe most people will not agree with that goal. But if you talk to people and say, well, you want to make better policy and you want to make policy that makes sense to impact people's lives, people will be like, yeah, sure. So there is that stereotype, exactly as you said, where gender becomes, well, women go talk about gender and let's everyone else talk about making better policy, but you cannot make better policy without having data about everybody. Um, I think the second thing just to put on the table here is that men and women um, react to issues differently, issues impact men and women differently. Uh, you just mentioned invisible women and maybe some of you read that here. You know, there's a lot of examples around product design, about workplace culture, about infrastructure and policy. Um, and I want to give a few examples in the policy space. Uh, one on why more data is needed to inform better policy, but also why there isn't enough data to look at gender impacts on policy. So, um, you know, just as an example, I work a lot on anti-corruption, and people are like, anti-corruption is a neutral issue, right? Why, why should it affect men and women differently? And actually, just today, um, there was a recent study by an anti-corruption global organization called Transparency International, and their findings show that it, corruption impact men and women very, very differently. But there just isn't enough data to show that. So women uh, face um, huge um, exploitation or sextortion is what they call it, sex sexual exploitation in schools, in public healthcare centers, at refugee camps, in, in, in prisons, uh, in the hands of public officials and government officials. But there isn't enough data to show that, and therefore there aren't enough gender reporting, gender sensitive reporting mechanisms, and subsequently fewer policy measures to tackle that. So, you know, that just shows that I think to understand some of this, we just don't have the data. I think the second thing to think about is, is, is also we, we, we need to think through, again, what is a gender neutral policy? Um, and, and we've been thinking about this a lot um, with the countries we work with, and my foray into the policy space came in through the access to mo information movement in India. 
And, you know, again, in, in several of our countries, there are access to information laws, and one would say, you know, they're gender neutral. And um, in India, actually, if, if anyone's followed the access to information movement there, it was very much a result of a grassroots movement with a lot of women uh, going out on the streets, marching, and there were a lot of marginalized and underserved communities represented there. And it's been about 10 years after that law passed, there was a first study done on what is the gender sort of usage, breakdown of usage of the law. And it turns out that actually only 8%, and this was the national average, of women use, you know, that 8% uh, was the national average. And that is pretty low. But there was no understanding of, well, was it a, di a digital gap? Was it a literacy gap? Was it an access gap? Was it a resource gap? So unless this information exists and we collect it, um, and collected very soon, we, we don't understand stuff like this. You know, the, the other thing that, that uh, we talk a lot about these days is around digital governance, digital technologies. We're talking about fake news, we're talking about algorithmics, making government decisions, and, um, but there isn't enough data, again, to understand how men use the internet differently, how women use the internet differently, what kind of data is going into informing some of these algorithms that are then determining how governments, you know, look at tax, look at public services, etc. And again, this is, it's important to ensure that the data that, that and, and, and policy decision making that happens using this data is not biased and is not, doesn't end up being discriminatory um, without reason. Right, thank you. So, so where can we look for positive examples? So which countries are leading the way in trying to bridge this gender data gap? Um, so I wish I could say there was like one country that was, that was doing this really well, but unfortunately, you know, the state of the world today is, is a sad one, as we all recognize. Um, so I think there are, there are a couple of questions that we always encourage people to ask in thinking through, uh, you know, what kind of data and how, how do we think about gender. So when we think about policy interventions or the need for policy intervention, one question is always, uh, we encourage people asking is, what is the extent of representation or opportunity gap between uh, different gender groups. Um, you know, one example we've seen in Germany uh, through our platform, through the Open Government Partnership platform, Germany uh, made a policy reform commitment on uh, looking at data of men and women in leadership positions in the public sector and private sector uh, to help them develop an implementation framework on uh, equality of leadership in the public and private sector. So again, not saying Germany is doing it well everywhere, but this was an interesting example of women and men in, in, in leadership. Um, another really interesting example we've seen is Argentina collecting data around uh, workforce participation of women. Again, how women participate in the workforce and where they participate, there isn't a lot known, and so how do you look at employment uh, policy, how do you look at employment uh, conversations? Again, I think that was, that was an interesting one. Um, and then another area I think which was interesting, and if you, are, you know, like I said, people think about corruption and anti-corruption as gender neutral. A very interesting sort of in, in the anti-corruption movement, there's a really interesting conversation about opening up procurement data because governments spend a huge amount of money on, on, on procurement. Mm -hmm. And so uh, in Kenya, actually, it was interesting that as a byproduct of their procurement policy, they are looking at um, how many contracts go to women-owned businesses. And this gives a very interesting data point because 
only 1% actually, and I think this is, this is um, um, a, a global average of, 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 uh, of uh, contracts, public contracts go to women-owned businesses. But again, we don't know if this average holds true because a lot of countries don't uh, collect this data. But what happens is when you have this data, then governments are able to see, well, how do, what kind of resources do you need to get women-owned businesses to the table? What is actually preventing them from bidding for contracts, etc.? So, you know, that's, that's one set of question. Where is the representation on opportunity gap? Another question, I think, which is often interesting to ask is, uh, you know, where are the challenges, especially around gender, um, um, uh, uh, gender impact um, uh, norms? And I think one of the, the, the examples that I, I really like is around, um, from Uruguay, who was publishing information around where there is gender-based violence so that communities could then help tackle those around where can we form support groups, where governments could provide support centers. So I think where you see that data, even for gender-targeted issues, I think it's very interesting and there's not enough out there. Um, Another set of questions, not for policy need, but actually what is the gender impact of policy is, is an interesting question to ask. So in Canada, they've just, it is one of the first countries to look at gender-based analysis of their budget and to see where there is, um, you know, for, for across all their policy areas, to see where there is a gendered impact um, and then what kind of, therefore, measures do they need to fill that gap. So I think that, that, that's an interesting way of saying, well, it could be anything. It could be policy on employment. It could be a policy on agriculture. But looking at what the gender impact is and the gender-based budget analysis shows allocations um, that way. And then I think the, the final set um, of examples uh, that I can think of is, again, around um, looking at where... Uh, men and women have access to different services, a very, very, in, or um, access services differently. A very interesting example that we have from within the countries we worked with is in Seoul, in South Korea, that have, we were developing an open source subway map, public transit map, and in doing that, they involved men and women um, and different gender groups to see how they interacted with the public transit system differently because they recognized that whether it's the elderly or whether it's those with different abilities or it's women um, or men interact with public transit systems and sidewalks differently. And so to understand what needs they had in just walking through the subway. So I think these are some examples of where across different policy areas, countries are doing innovative things. They're nearly not at scale as we want them to be. But it's a good starting point. Excellent. Thank you very much. So Tweefi, now can you help us think about how to understand the quality impact and what exactly is needed to try to address um, kind of systemic societal issues such as the gender pay divide, digital inequality, and so on? Yeah. Thank you for that question, Sandra. Yeah, so I'm sort of coming in from the developing country uh, perspective. I recently moved to London just about a, a month ago. So um, <laughs> as I've come here, I have been somewhat astounded by uh, the choices and opportunities that are available to, to people and, uh, and even women. And when I think about the, the gender gap and I think about um, why it's so important, I think it revolves around creating opportunities and giving choices to women, especially in the developing world where those uh, choices and opportunities 
are so limited. Yeah, just the month that I've been here, when I think about uh, the opportunities that are available for work, uh, the way people uh, work, the way they're able to make decisions about when they start families, how they start families, and I mean, it's not perfect even here, and there's still a very long way to go. But when I compare it to what goes on to where I come from, I'm, I'm coming in from, um, from Lusaka in Zambia, there's such a stark contrast. And I think that's where data sort of comes in, because uh, data helps to sort of crystallize issues. It helps to, to give them substance, to give them physical form. So when I think of just the example that Oriana just gave us or some of the anecdotes that both of you sort of walked us through, you begin to see, uh, I mean, data gives visibility. So when you say that half of the population uh, in the world roughly are women, but 47% of women are involved in car accidents, it, 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 it gives it, it crystallizes it, and it sort of says we have to think about this through a, through a gendered lens. So, so I think data... Uh, makes things potent, it makes them evocative, and it, uh, and it gives them that, uh, that added power. And as we are thinking about um, gender and the data revolution, I think when you, when you see how, how readily people internalize this information or how, how hungry the appetite that they have for it, it sort of tells you two things. People want information about gender, and uh, secondly, we don't have enough of it, mm. and it's not... Um, at the quality or, or, or level that, that would be ideal. And we don't just need that information for the sake of having it, but uh, it's so that we can address some of these systemic issues, the, the gender pay gap, uh, women's unpaid labor, uh, the, to reap the benefits of the, of, of the data and the digital revolution. Uh, there are some reports that uh, that is giving us opportunities for perhaps women to, to leapfrog or, 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 or jump over certain traditional barriers. But if we don't know the numbers, if we don't know uh, the level of access, we don't know what the barriers are, it's difficult for us to, to reap those dividends. So, And um, as I said, we're not really just looking for this information for the sake of having it. We need it to, to design policy. Mm -hmm. We need it to implement policy, to target policy so that... Um, we can we, we can uh, bring about better outcomes. Mm -hmm. yeah. So trying on your experience with the IGC, can you think of instances in which you saw researchers and policymakers come together to try to collect data, gender data, analyze gender data, and use it effectively for policy design and implementation? Yeah, sure. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm 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 very excited about the IGC model in terms of how we try to do things. So we try to adopt an, an approach of co-generation of knowledge, which is this idea of engaging with policymakers right at the onset of uh, research projects and helping to identify those problems together and working throughout the entire life cycle of the project with policymakers and then feeding them back uh, into, into both policy and research. And I could, I can, I can just quickly describe one great project that um, that is that revolves around gender issues that was carried out in in Zambia by our lead academic, and uh, it sought to sort of address um, a gender imbalance in a, an innovative and um, very efficacious way in the end. So in Zambia. Uh, as in much of the developing world or parts of the developing world, the education of, uh, of boys is valued above the education of girls. And so if parents are going to make a choice between which of the two they're going to educate, then they'll invest in the boys. Uh, but this consequently leads to poor outcomes for the girls. It means that uh, they have poor labor, out, uh, labor market outcomes, uh, they don't have access to higher education, health outcomes are poor. 
Um, yeah, but so how do you how do you tackle that? Well, one of our researchers, uh, the lead academic for Zambia, uh, Nava Ashraf, came up with the idea of what if you were to teach eight grade Zambian girls negotiation skills that are taught at top business schools? What if you were to equip them with these non-cognitive social and emotional skills that will help them to become agents of change uh, to influence their outcomes. So they brought in, um, they run a training program and help these girls sort of understand how that curriculum worked. And uh, yeah, interestingly enough, outcomes for girls improved for the next two years, education outcomes were better, and they find that those outcomes haven't faded. And the research is ongoing, and I'm sure they're going to study other things, health outcomes, and, and what happens in terms of when these girls enter the labor market. But what was also cool about it was that the Zambian government was involved right from the onset. They were kept up to date about this data. I think one of the, uh, the technocrats from the Ministry of General Education was actively part of the project. And this led to this curriculum being integrated into the Zambia National School Curriculum, which means that it was expanded nationally and, uh, and all girls in, in these schools could benefit from that training. And for us, that's like a direct uh, feeding into policy. And, it's, and, and, and governments love these types of solutions because they are low cost and they're innovative. I mean, they, 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 they tackle a problem in a... In a, some, in a way that you'd not typically think of. So, yeah, that's, that's the example I'd give. Data. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for this initial set of thoughts. I would now like to open questions from the audience. So I will take them in rounds of three at a time. Uh, please state your name and the organization you're with and try to keep the questions as brief as possible. Uh, Wenjiku from LSE, student. Um, <laughs> yeah. So we've talked, you've talked a lot about um, data collection, um, and I'm, I'm just thinking when it comes to a lot of the data collection that we do involves self-reporting, and there is a difference, like we've just done the exercise about like how like women and the difference between women and men in terms of like their overconfidence and perceptions. So how do you think... Uh, because that can bias also the data, not, not only the people who are processing the data, but the actual people who are self-reporting. So how do you think you, we can account for that while yeah, looking at data? Um, well, my name is Katerina. Um, I'm a student here as well. And um, I found, find it really interesting, the points that you've made about how data is important to tackle gender inequality. But also, I'm wondering about, like, we're in a, in a world where basically we use a lot of algorithms and, and AI to study, well, to our apps are using AI. And how can that also reinforce gender stereotypes? Because basically they're using data that has already gender gaps and all these other issues. And I'm wondering if policy and also research has done anything to tackle this or to study this. Hi, my name is Milan, I work in the city, in consulting. Um, the first one is maybe just a statement, um, an opinion. I think we shouldn't have uh, gender equality or talking about LGBT or talking about any of the minority groups without having also on board uh, the other side, uh, because I think uh, it is important. We can't tackle any of those if we don't have... It's kind of about breaching the converted. Um, I think we should, we should consider that also when we, when we organize something like this. Um, 
And the question is, how do we use data to tackle kind of hidden inequalities? Because when we are talking about women, I think there is so much intersectional under there about women of color, about different cultural backgrounds. When we are talking about mental health, we know that male are having uh, committing much more suicide than male, male than, f than female, but then gay men are committing twice more suicide and have a significantly more mental health problems than the straight male, etc. So how do we kind of move from being very one or zero digital in that sense to being a bit more intersectional and covering actually kind of making policy a bit user-centric rather than very one or zero? like to have a go? Uh, okay. So uh, for the first question about self-reporting, that's a very good question. Uh, there are methods of survey data collection that actually cross-check questions to check for consistency of the self-report. And uh, I mean, it is an issue that's very, very present in people's mind. We collect it as well as we can. I think, you know, often there is a tendency of letting the best be the enemy of the good saying because we cannot collect the perfect data, then maybe we shouldn't collect any data. That's a terrible excuse. We should never give up to that. We should think of ways of improving our data, say, by having consistency checks. Um, the point that you made is brilliant. And indeed, that was the first point that I made. We should never have... I really, I'm really waiting for the day where a panel on women equality contains only men. <laughs> Long may that continue. Um, <laughs> the point about intersectional is very important. Uh, with uh, the process, inevitably, as uh, women equality improves, the inequality within women gets higher. That is the case with development. When a country is terribly poor, everybody's equal. Everybody's equally poor. As the country starts growing, some people get richer before. That doesn't mean it's probably inevitable, but that doesn't mean we should ignore it. I think we should always look at those who are left behind. And uh, the final point about invisible inequalities, of course they're the most treacherous because they're invisible, but at the same time they're often the ones that are more, they're easier once you see them, they're easier to eliminate because they're often remains of norms which are not there anymore. So when I joined the LSE, all academic seminars started at 5.30. It were 5.30 till 7, ideal for women with a young family. I mentioned to my colleagues, this timing is really not helpful. And they said, oh, right, let's change it then. And it was as easy as that. And as that, I changed the time of meetings, the times of seminars. So many things are there and they're just remains and nobody thinks about changing them because it doesn't bother them. But don't be shy, just ask. Thank you. Can you speak? Sure, I'll take them in the reverse order. On the, on the hidden equalities bit, I think one thing to really think about is um, not having a conversation on gender equality in data, but having a conversation about anything else and mainstreaming gender in there. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you know, there'll be that room where there'll be a gender data conversation happening, and then there'll be like 15 other rooms talking about digital and, you know, uh, politics and political participation and industry. So I think that's one way to go about it. But I think we're all in agreement with you here is, is let's not have, and this is, 
every con- every time I've been on a panel talking about gender data, I've been in a, an all women panel. So it's 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 interesting that we we aren't breaking out of that. Um, but I think ways that people have tackled it is really interesting. So um, I don't know if you living in London, I don't know if you've heard about these climate assemblies that are taking place around the UK. And one of the things is, well, yes, data informs policy. Uh, but, you know, coming from where I come from the transparency movement and we say, well, transparency isn't enough alone unless that's converted to accountability and participation by involving people and communities that, uh, that are affected. And this climate assemblies try to do that just that. They bring in uh, people in a, in, in a very sophisticated random sampling way that ensures that it represents the community it looks to develop that policy for. So I think it's dangerous if there's somebody you know, sitting in a room behind a laptop bring, making policy and not taking it out. And I think this is one way to tackle um, hidden inequalities. On the uh, reinforcing stereotypes and in digital, I mean, that is the big problem that I think anyone's looking to tackle. There's this really dangerous example of, of you know, um, um, data in an, al- in, in an algorithm uh, somewhere in the United States, I, I, I forget where, that was looking at the first layer of, of, incult- of um, judicial decisions. And so the kind of data I've had about race and gender would then, you know, biases towards the incidence of incarceration. And I think that's, that's something that is recognized. So one of the ways that people are looking at public sector algorithms being transparent is one thing, but involving communities that it affects um, is, is important. So again, if you're looking at data that, that affects tax system algorithms or public service algorithms, it's important to take them out and, and, and you know, do an ethical evaluation, a human rights evaluation, and involve the communities that um, it affects in, 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 in more ways than one. In private sector algorithms like social uh, media networks, that's a huge battle to be won, along with several other battles on how they tackle misinformation, fake news, and um, you know, all the rest, and that's a whole other conversation that I'm happy to have. Um, on the self-reporting, I think I'll just add to what Oriana already said. I think just le- using data that's sort of um, there without layers of verification built in, I think makes data weaker. So um, I don't know how many of you are, in, uh, are familiar with the open data movement, but a, a huge part of it is making that data open and published also increases the chances not of just independent verification, but the more you use it, the more people are, are, you know, are able to engage with us saying, well, this is not right and this is not wrong. So I think that's one way to tackle it. Trivi, do you want to add something? Or yeah, I'll, 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 I'll just add very, very quickly on the issue of self-reporting. I think, yeah, that's something that people have identified as a problem. And I think one of the things that people are beginning to do, for instance, when they're carrying out surveys is uh, typically um, when you do a survey, sometimes you'll ask the, the head of the household to answer the survey, and in many countries that would end up being the male, and uh, yes, obviously that will might introduce certain biases because the, the head of the household is, is, is the one answering that. But other people are sort of beginning to ask who's the primary care of the children, or, or you conduct surveys with, with, with both the woman and the man, and you sort of get more, slightly more nuanced data uh, with that, yeah. So I just wanted to add that people are sort of finding ways and thinking about how they can uh, they can enrich the data and uh, and get around some of those uh, those biases. Excellent. Thanks. Can we take more questions? So three more questions. 
Hello. Hi, I'm Chloe. Thank you so much. It's been really interesting. Um, I currently am designing a data collection tool for um, two development impact bonds. And I re building on what you were saying just there, how do we collect data, gender disaggregated data that goes beyond are you a male or are you a female? And that actually helps you identify the barriers that are associated with that. Hi. Does it work? Um, I'm Ines, I'm a software engineer. Um, I just wanted to recap on invisible women. Um, we're saying that we need data to create better policies. But what happens when despite the data that is out there, the opposite is still believed? Like with meritocracy at work and getting promotions and all of that. In, according to the book, it says that Meritocracy is not actually the norm. It's not what is happening. So why are companies still saying that they promote based on meritocracy, for example? Hi, I'm Naveen. I work for uh, Deutsche Telekom. Uh, my question is, uh, are we expecting too much from data here? Because there's a very, book, a very good book called uh, Weapons of Math Destruction by Cathy O'Neill, where, where she goes and says, I mean, when you analyze complex data, it's more about the algorithms, you know, who's building it. And we build algorithms, you know, and there can be gender biases, you know. So are we expecting too much f uh, from data? And a related question is what is the best case scenario, you know, when we talk about data revolution and gender equality? Thank you. Shall we go in the same, the other way around? The other way around? <laughs> Should I go the other way around? Sure. Okay. So. Yeah, I think I think I'll sort of uh, maybe respond to the question about uh, how do you how do you go beyond um, just the idea of having uh, the the variable male or female? Is it, does that make it gender research? And I think the answer is is no, it doesn't. But I think it is it is the first step. It, it, it it's a necessary step. But um, yeah, I think it's. Um, it's it's a couple of things. I think it's about thinking about different research designs and uh, how different research designs can uh, can get at what you're trying to to achieve. And uh, I might not have any specific examples of that, but I think that that would what you that would be what you need to do. Um, what is the best uh, what is the best case scenario? I think for me, the best case scenario uh, in, would be to have women as users and producers of mm -hmm. data, because the more women that you have producing data and actively using data and unlocking the power of it, uh, that is when some of these things will will begin to 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 change and some of these biases will be will be dealt away with. I think even if we just look back at a hundred years or even fifty years or even ten years, uh, the reason why we've had uh, change in so many spheres of of life is because. Uh, the people who are, whether it's the minority groups or people who have traditionally been excluded, have begun to sort of slowly edge their way to the center. And I think data is just is, is one of those tools that can more efficiently or can help us and help us do that. Yeah. Um, I want to club the one about um, you know data's out there, but why is the opposite happening? And are we expecting too much from data? I think one of the things that we think is as long as there's some data that's put out there, it's going to make everything okay, right? There is a whole set of problems around: is it the right data? What is the quality of the data? Is it that is data answering the question we need? So there's a whole set of you know the data specific questions, but there is the other thing is well, who is equipped to engage with that data? Um, you know, we, we, when we talk to governments, the first, the easiest policy reform commitment they want 
want to make um, with, with our platform, OGP, is opening up data sets. And, you know, there are governments who've opened up millions and millions of data sets with nobody using them. And so how do you then equip a whole range of not just policymakers, but journalists, investigative journalists to go out there? And, you know, we have fantastic examples of women investigative journalists going out there and pulling out the data relevant and saying, well, this is what the data is saying. But unless we equip journalists... Hackers, academics use a lot of data, but then you know, uh, uh, young people like, uh, like like students at the LSC. So I think there is also a lot of stuff we need to do around data use um, and, and and data dissemination. But but I think more more than anything else, matching the data to the communities that it involves. So you know, data tells a one very important story. But I think taking it back and, and, and letting that be a base for starting an engagement, whether it's on policy, whether it's on practice, whether it's developing an app. You know, if, if you develop an app, you do do market research. You do focus group research. This is taking that, that, that data-driven first set of policy principles and, and a hypothesis, and then you go test it out. Um, so just to add, uh, so that's my very generous suggestion. Now put me in a situation. That I don't remember the question. <laughs> Questions exactly. Right. No, so I remember. So the first thing, I I don't agree that things haven't improved. I think you're way too young. Um, two generations ago, my grandmother had an arranged marriage at the age of 14, and had six children by the age of 20. I think I'm doing better than that. <laughs> So I think things have improved. Uh, that doesn't mean that they cannot get better. But of course, they will not get better automatically. We still have to work on it. And uh, the data won't analyze itself. But at the same time, if it's put openly, and many more people can access it, it's not just the person choosing the algorithm. I agree with you that if it's just one, of, you know, one organization and one person analyzing the data, then it's another opinion because I could spin those data anywhere I wanted. But if it's openly accessible, then more than one person can analyze it, then it becomes a fact. Uh, there is need for more education in statistics. Even basic statistics would you know, make many companies bankrupt, many companies that do not do very nice things, uh, and would allow people to really leverage the strength of data. Um, thank you very much for the talk. Uh, my name is Kito. I'm a student at the LSE. Um, I just I was wondering, and my friends and I were actually having a conversation about, um, med, uh, you know, um, systems or matrices that people use to um, measure, you know, development or equality, and um, talking about the usefulness of of data. Um, are there I don't know, from a policy perspective, are there ways that um, governments are looking at um, changing maybe um, the way that we measure equality? I mean, does GDP allow for gender equality? Does um, the Gini coefficient, is there any space, you know, for, you know, those, uh, you know, gender equality in these kind of systems? Because how do you make it useful if we're using the same old systems? Hi, I'm uh, Kanesh Gosu a student here at the LSE. I'm wondering, um, do you think that uh, like gender equality can be achieved without 
kind of overcompensating on the other way where men are jeopardized. I mean, I think that, to be honest, I think they deserve it, but like, there's this thing that, no, honestly, it's like, there's this thing with um, research into the pill where it's like, okay, we've decided that the pill is probably bad for women, but there's not enough um, research because men are like, oh no, we don't want to do that. Like, do you think, um, you know, like, equality can be achieved where, you know, some men have to take the fall in order to go then back to the middle? Hi, my name is Jamie. I work for Publish What You Fund and work on aid transparency. Um, and actually, I was wondering what your opinions are, thoughts on um, kind of how a lot of the data revolution has focused on the quantitative data. Same with the SDGs, um, you know, the indicators. They're all very much things that you can measure quantitatively. And I was wondering um, what your perspectives are of the added value of qualitative data and how we could maybe incorporate that a bit more into the discussion. Thank you. I think there was just one more question. So since we have to wrap up soon, if that's okay and you remember still the equality <laughs> and all the different questions, that will be the last one. Thank you. Uh, I'm Ben. I work for the Behavioral Insights team. Um, slightly building on that previous question, um, if you could choose one metric that governments were judged on gender equality by, what would it be? Um, yeah, sure. Yeah, so on the issue of qualitative data, I think um, from the research projects that I've been sort of privileged to, to be a part of or to oversee, I think qualitative data does play a very important role. Um, it's true that it's what quantitative data can tell you is, is very limited. It's, it's also very like defined. It's almost like a binary. But um, a lot of research projects, there's then a, a reiterative process where you go in, you hold focus group discussions, uh, you interview people, in-depth interviews, to get a sense of uh, the, the issues and, and where you need, how you need to think about the problem. And even at the end, when you get the results, you sort of go back and, and you have those types of interviews, those types of discussions to, 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 to help understand what you're, what you're looking at and whether your interpretations are consistent with uh, what's going on in the context. So I think, uh, yeah, you're right. I think it's important that while we are looking at uh, quantitative data, which is absolutely important because it gives us the most precise measurements that we can get, we must not, um, we must not ignore the qualitative side. And I think the qualitative side also gives people or it, or it gives them faces and names, and, 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 and it puts on a layer of experience, so it's, um, it's, it's, it's always important. Uh, in terms of uh, how governments are looking at, um, at gender equality and whether they are in, incorporating them in, in traditional metrics, I think, I think developing country governments, to their credit, have also changed to some extent. I think if you look back 20, 30 years and the way that uh, developing country governments looked or thought about uh, a lot of issues, it is slowly evolving, not as quickly as it should, but it is changing. And uh, I think I was, in a, I was in a meeting just before I came to Zambia and uh, what the, the Zambian government was, is going to the, was supposed to be going to the UN to present on uh, the progress on the SDGs. And uh, they were sort of asking think tanks and, and, and research institutions to help them come up with, uh, uh, with data-driven evidence about different, different subjects. And they were going to sort of incorporate that into their presentation. So I think um, with a lot of push from NGOs, international organizations, the way that governments are thinking about these issues and policies has changed. And I think uh, the role of institutions like the one I work for is to sort of help to equip them with that 
uh, with that evidence. On the one metric, I'm going to let everybody else answer and come back to it. <laughs> um, on the indices of uh, to measure equality, I agree. I think the conversation has evolved, and um, you know, across the world, developing and developed countries. I think one example I can think of is just where informal work is being taken more in terms of thinking through the economy. And you know, there's a huge body of work on this, uh, but. Even a few years ago, the informal economy was not something that was considered. Uh, you know, people um, uh, selling food, uh, street food, or people working in uh, in, in uh, domestic uh, work, it was just not considered. And I think that's one you know example of where it's progress. Certainly not progressed enough as it should, and it's still very. Um, um, I think that it, it needs to have several more dimensions, but I think it's a start. Um, on the qualitative versus quantitative, uh, you know, how it can be more qualitative, again, I think I agree. I think uh, where we see people uh, or encourage governments to include um, interviews following up with a random sample after surveys, you know, the citizen assemblies example that I gave, you have a baseline that you established and then, and then, then you do more. There is interesting examples also of government involving uh, citizens in, in budgets or, or, or um, uh, you know, audits. And it's not just sort of filling a survey or checking a box. They encourage them to then give feedback on, on these questions if you're a user, you know, on that road or where this percentage of the budget has gone into health and following up with specific user groups and involving them in monitoring how that's going. And I think that's, in, that's those are interesting ways that we've seen from Nigeria, Kenya to, you know, the, the developed world, um, this happening. On metric on gender, that's interesting. I think um, one, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to see where this goes, but I think uh, how, to what extent governments involve um, not just women, but different gender groups and communities in, in policy decision making, not just in, in you know, women's representation in parliament, but um, diversity in, in, in city councils or in community, uh, um, you know, citizens assemblies or community groups. I think that's one way. I, I, I'm hesitating because I don't want to say all women speak for women. Um, and, and you know, I think that's a little bit of a, 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 um, a, um, an absolute which I, I don't quite agree with. But I think the more diversity you have across different layers of policy decision making ensures that you you, you, you know recognize a certain diversity that your policies need to address. Thank you. Uh, very well. I think I agreed with everything that has been said on the qualitative and on the measures of GDP, which have been uh, you know gendered. Is in an increasing work in progress, but it's going in the right direction. So let me take the other two questions. One, should we invert the gap? Should we have a man gap? Uh, I think the main thing to really focus on is that this is not a zero-sum game. We are not fighting for the same pie. If we improve the allocation of talent, there is more pie for everybody. So there is no need to have an inverted gap. There is no need in 20 years to have a panel like this made of men complaining about <laughs> gender equality. And actually, that brings me the answer to your question, what is the best metric? To me, the best metric would be that there'd be no more need to discuss about equality. I think the goal should be gender neutrality, that it doesn't matter whether you're a man or a woman or white or black or anything. What matters is your talent and that your talent is put to the best use. 
Great. Well, thank you very much. I would ask each of the panelists to provide your final thoughts or to summarize in a tweet the discussion that we just had tonight um, and, and to help us think of, as a community of researchers, policymakers, private sector as well, how can we all contribute to overcoming this gender gap in data? So. Well, I can't get any more ambitious than saying that there should be no need of panels like this. That will be your tweet. So I think that would be my tweet. <laughs> That's your tweet, the summary tweet. I'm really not good at tweets. Um, I'll say that ask for gender lens whenever you ask for data. Um, ask for gender impact whenever you look at policy um, impact. Mm, tweets, yeah. Um. <laughs> the tweet was not the important part of the exercise. It's just a summary of the yeah, I, yeah, I'll just say, yeah, the, the, the data revolution should be gendered. It should be, yeah, otherwise it will it will just escape the, the, the systemic challenges that women have had if we don't think about it like that. Yeah. Well, thank you, everyone, for such a stimulating discussion.